Welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks meet the geeks and nothing but rainbows, unicorns, and ice cream emerges. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and in today's episode, we speak with Michael Ohiozzi, who recently participated in the 4x400 relays for the United Kingdom at the Tokyo Olympic Games. Michael was actually a student of mine in the master's program in kinesiology at St. Mary's College of California, so I was eager to hear that he had made it to the Olympics and eager to have him as a guest on the show. So please listen in for some great insights into the mind of an elite athlete as Michael tells us about his journey from soccer playing lad in the UK to a soccer scholarship in the US and finally finding his way to track and field's biggest stage. Thank you so much for taking the time to help me out here on this show, Michael. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm very appreciative for you to consider me. Not at all. First of all, congratulations on making it to the Olympics. That's what an amazing accomplishment that is. Thank you. It was incredible and surreal. Those are the two words I can best use to describe everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to talk in depth about the Olympics, but I always like to start these shows by starting from the beginning and asking you questions about your childhood and how you got into sports. And I know uh, from reading some other articles about your trajectory that track and field, which is the event that you made it to the Olympics, wasn't actually your first sport. So what was the first sport that you played? Soccer was the first sport I really actually gravitated to. It was essentially my first love, especially being from London, growing up there, football, soccer is the most prominent sport. And that was where my first love came from. And I played ever since I could remember. My mom's always told me stories of the first thing I ever gravitated to and held when I was a baby was a soccer ball. So mm-hmm. that was what I've always done and always played. And growing up, everything was about soccer. And when the Olympics came around, I would always watch it. And it was always so fascinating to me because, especially within my family, I've always been athletically fast. So my second oldest sister, she's two years older than me, but when we were in school from like elementary and junior mm-hmm. and even high school, we all ran. So she ran for our school, I ran for our school, my little sister ran for our school, and then my little brother ran for our school. Mm-hmm. So it's always been there, but because it's not as dominant and popular as soccer, it was never given the same attention. So we would only do it, like sports day was once a year and it was maybe a week long. But that one week you get to claim the prize of being the fastest person in school for the year Mm -hmm. but it was only one week long so for the rest of the year soccer was everything apart from that one week but yeah I grew up playing it it was everything I wanted I actually wanted to be a professional soccer player growing up that was my only desire my dad would ask me what do I want to do for a career and I was like I only want to play football there isn't anything I could see myself doing apart from playing football but I think there were a few times I just considered being an athlete Mm -hmm. because that's just why I was I remember one time when I after I started running one of my aunties came to me and she was like did you know you told me when you were younger you wanted to be an athlete and it was because of running track and I didn't even remember that because of how my love for soccer just capitalized on everything nothing else really had mattered as much but there were times where I did start considering it so Mm -hmm. yeah that's where my sports kind of started Yes, and you were very good at soccer, and you were able to 
use your skills in soccer to make it here to the U.S., as I understand. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. One of my friends, family friends growing up, actually my best friend's older brother came out to the States the year before me. Mm-hmm. He got a scholarship to play. And that's what really opened my eyes to of the opportunity to come out to the United States and play. And sure. it was also just an opportunity, another opportunity for me to try and reach the highest level, which is play professionally. Because I looked into like the uh, MLS and seeing the draft and how you had different leagues out here. And it's like, okay, if I go to school out here, one, I can continue support my parents in getting my education and having something to fall back on. Sure. But this was another chance for me to really push to make it to that professional level. And yeah, I got a scholarship to go play soccer at St. Ambrose University. Yeah. And what was it like at St. Ambrose when you got there? Had you ever been to the United States before? No, that was my uh-huh. first time ever. I've only been to Nigeria a couple of times when I was younger. So I was, by the time I turned 18, that was the first time I'd left the country on my own to go anywhere mm-hmm. in almost 15, 14 years. So it was surreal, but I was lucky enough my sister came with me to help me settle in. But it was great. I loved it because I wasn't the only person from England. We had a, a very good, large international soccer team. Like a lot of guys were from England. Uh-huh. The following year, my sophomore year, I ended up meeting somebody that lived about 15 minutes away from me, and which has been insane on the soccer team. Like we both live in North yes. London and then we move all the way to Davenport, Iowa. And that's where we meet each other supporting the same team, playing similar positions. That was just a surreal moment, just like having that moment with that guy. So yeah, I loved it. It was such a great eye-opener. It helped me grow as a person, just from being able to be out on my own in an environment that I'm unfamiliar with. So I was very uncomfortable. So I had to grow to be comfortable. Sure, absolutely. And you were 18 years old or thereabouts when you moved here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 18 years old, which was... Crazy to think almost, what, eight years ago now, I moved out here essentially on my own to just con- continue pursuing my dreams. And and you were on the, the soccer team here in Iowa, in the United States. And what happened? Somebody sees that you're very fast and says you should try track and field? Or how do, how do you make that trend? So growing up in London, football, soccer was year round. That was what I knew. So I was always playing soccer for the whole entire year. And then when I got to the States, it was only for the fourth semester, which kind of threw me in a little pickle because I'm like, I'm always active playing. Sure. So it was, what do I do when I'm not in season? And one of the guys named Sam, he was pretty quick too. So he had actually tried out for the track team, but he just said it wasn't for him. He wasn't really there for it. And I was like, I remember that growing up, me and my sisters, my cousins, my friends, we always raced because I'd watched the Olympics. And I always considered myself one of the fastest guys in school, I was either one of the fastest or the fastest. So it was mm-hmm. like, I can join the team, worst case scenario, this is going to help my fitness for the next season. So that was the intention behind it. I told my coach and he was like, I'll put you in touch with the track team. And I then went to speak to him. And initially I was actually going to go out for hurdles because mm-hmm. like once upon a time in school, I'd done hurdles. But come day first day of practice I was like let me stay with the sprints before I try something I haven't done in yes yeah. and how did it go what happened um, that first day that you went out for the track team that first day was very interesting because I had only known two people on the team one of my friends lived across the hall from me in our dorms 
and a girl had transferred over that had met her on the first day. So I had two friends going into it and I was like, okay, my friend that lived across from me was injured so he couldn't practice and the girl was a hurdler. Well, I saw the hurdlers go over to their side and there was a good group of them. So I was like, I'm a little intimidated. I don't want to go and be the new guy that doesn't know what he's doing. So I went over to the sprints and I met Coach Arthur, who has become one of my mentors and great friends. And it was like four or five of us and we had block starts with sleds. And I remember doing it, but I had no idea what I was doing. Like I got into the blocks and I just literally popped up and started running straight down. And I was making so much noise with the sleds and I just remember getting to the end and everyone's like staring at me. I was like, I don't know what I just did. What did I do? <laughs> Was it that bad? I just thought, okay, let me just get back and keep going and just keep my head down. But apparently it's because everyone thought I looked pretty good. So I was like, okay, we'll see how this goes. But it was a first good day for me because it opened my eyes to how difficult it is because there's so much technicality that goes into it. Like there's so many different elements from your block starts to your running mechanics. But it was exciting. It was something new, refreshing for me to learn. And I think I read that you grew quite a bit while you were in college. Yeah. And that must I, have helped your speed as well. Yeah, I went through physically a whole new change. I think when I got to the States, I was about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, and I was very skinny. I may have been like 155 pounds maybe. And that first year, I was definitely still growing into my body. And obviously, with track and field, you have to go through lifting. So it was all a big adjustment for me. I was trying to figure out how my body works. So yeah, I definitely grew at least two, three inches that first year. So yeah, and then put on at least good 10 pounds in yes. the process. Yes. And so you were still on the soccer team at St. Ambrose at that time, right? So you were yeah, just doing, so you were a dual sport athlete at that point. Yeah, so soccer was still number one priority at that time. It was fun doing track that first year. It was, but it was just to supplement me back into soccer. And it actually worked out significantly well. I came back my second year physically better. I was more hungry for it. I felt physically stronger and faster. And I felt my game elevated a lot just off going to track because it helped me understand how to run and how I could utilize my speed mm. in the game. Mm -hmm. So then after my second year, sophomore year, I went straight back into it. And then I saw a little bit of growth in track that I didn't really see as much in my first year. And that kind of intrigued me significantly. And obviously I'd made a lot of friends and it was like, oh, I don't know how, what's just happened? Like I've gone from being more soccer focused. Now I'm actually more intrigued in how well I can do in track. Mm -hmm. So then the second year, we actually ended up going to nationals and I became an All-American. And that was really odd for me because I was like, I didn't even understand. And like, I remember after getting the All-American award, a few of my friends on track team were like, oh, you're an All-American Brit. And I'm like, okay, sure, let's go with that. <laughs> but that's when I think I started to slowly shift. Soccer was still number one, but there was a lot more love for track now after seeing some success going. Sure. And especially because... I didn't know what I could actually do. And I just generally just started to love the sport because I love a team aspect. Like soccer was great because it was team focused, but with track, there's a collegiate anyway. It's a team setting, but, but individually focused. And I think I thrived a little more in that setting because mm -hmm. I could continue growing on myself mm -hmm. while still having a team to support me in that. And I think personally, that's when I thrive the most. Very interesting. And of course, 
as you say, you were coming from London and moving to Davenport, Iowa. It must have been quite a big culture shock. And so that team aspect of the soccer team and the team aspect of the, the track and field team must have been a very important you know, part of your experience. Yeah, no, definitely. Because being on the soccer team, everything about that was home. Mm. Like from my friends to what we talked about to how we could interact was everything about home. But then with the track team, it was everything I was growing to be. It was mm. new friends, mm -hmm. a new culture, new lingos, making something more of myself that I hadn't had from back home. And that's why I, it shifted as the years went, because it was like I've gone from being at home and what my identity was when I was at home, even my first year, to now this is my new identity. This is who I am now. So it was, when I look back, it was so beautiful in the sense that it just happened so smoothly. Mm -hmm. where I could just grow into myself because of both sports. Yes, both uh, physically and metaphorically, it seems. Yeah. And so did you have a favorite coach around this time or, or even earlier in life? Somebody most that really inspired you? Most definitely. So Coach Upper was our assistant track coach. And he's from he's originally from Ghana. Culturally, I'm, I'm from Nigeria with my parents. So he already understood culturally what I needed mm -hmm. and how to get across to me. And not just in track, but academically and personally. Sure. Because we have similar cultural standpoints. And he was always able to just understand what he could say to me that would get me to see things a little differently or just motivate me or open mm -hmm. my eyes differently. Mm -hmm. And even today, like we still FaceTime and talk and he still understands what I need to hear, what I don't want to hear, what best to put across to me what isn't and hmm. I, he, I think I pay him as a coaching standpoint through my collegiate career I have to give him a lot of credit because he generally took the time to help me develop and reach the levels I could reach today hmm. because I initially wasn't a 400 meter runner when I started I was just doing 100 and 200 but there were several times he would take me into the 400 group and have me run with those guys. And as challenging as it was, and it really mentally pushed me to limits that I physically didn't think I can get. I still remember my first practice at our indoor facility. Jim Warren, who was one of my favorite uh, teammates that we still talk to now that's pursuing professional careers just like mine. He had me run with him for the first practice. And this is still like just a few weeks into me joining the team. And Jim is one of the quickest guys and he had me try and run with him. And in my head, I'm like, I'm very competitive. I may be very friendly and comfortable in a race kind of setting or even training setting. I have to try and be number one. Sure. So I'm trying to keep up with him and it's just the first set. And I just physically feel my body about to shut down. So I'm like running into the bathroom thinking I'm done. Hmm. But that was Coach Arthur bringing me into that setting, trying to push me to be better than what I was. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have known mentally I couldn't take it at that time, but I have so much belief in myself that I was going to come back to try again. Even when I graduated after 2017, 2018 was a very limbo year for me because it was transitioning from being successful collegiate athlete to how do I break through to the professional level? Mm -hmm. I'm now just an amateur. I don't have a coach right now. I haven't been reached out to by anybody to say, Hey, come to this club or anything like that. It's me. I'm now, an adult that has to work and pay bills, live on my own, 
how do I navigate this part of the world? How do I still include track in this? And he was the one, whether he was living a, an hour away or not, he still took time to, okay, I'm going to coach you this year because I've been part of your growth. I've seen what works for you, what doesn't. Let's take this first year together and then we can transition off, take it one month at a time, take each session at a time. So there are times he'll drive down from where he lived to coach me. Mm-hmm. And there are times he'll just call me say, hey, how did the practice go today? What, what went well, what didn't? Okay, aside from track, how are you doing personally? How is work going? Are you physically tired? So I know if I have to adjust the workouts. So I have to give him huge credit for where I've come and where I am today. Thank you. That's really that's really fascinating. And I appreciate you sharing that. And one thing that really struck me in what you were just saying there, Michael, was this belief in yourself. And I wonder, obviously, this particular coach has helped you cultivate that self-confidence. But what are some other sources of that self-confidence in your life? Oh. A big one would be my now fiance. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. We met through running 400 together. My first year, my sophomore year running 400 was her freshman year running the 400. We were both the first leg of the four by four. So we'd always walk up to the start line together and we'd talk to each other. And I remember there was a race I didn't run because I had a little niggle that she was running and I could see how nervous it was. So I was just there. I didn't really know what I was doing because I'm like, I'm new to this. So I can give you advice in this part. I was just physically there. So I held her blocks and she ran, she did great. And then the tables flipped. We went to nationals and I was freaking out, thinking I'm going to do horrible. I don't know how, why they selected me to run a 400. It's like the most grueling event. I just want to sprint, do the 200, but I'm mm-hmm. now running 400. And mm-hmm. she really took the time just to really talk to me and bring me down to the reality that I am good enough, I can do this, and help me in by saying a lot of things that she goes through and how she's been able to transition from this fear in the 400 to being able to perform. And our relationship just kept growing together and she's always understood, even running the open 400, like there's certain points in the race where I go through this transition. So she's like, okay, I'm gonna be at this spot to make sure you're still going and you fall up, essentially. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of races, you'll see like this, even though my form goes to pieces, but it's me trying to run a little harder because she's always at that spot because that's where I need to try and pick it up again. So like by two, the last 150 or 400 is from 200 to 250 is very mentally grueling for me because it's 200, I've got another 200 to go. Mm-hmm. And early on in my career, I used to hit a plateau by that point. But she would always be at that spot to tell me, okay, this is where you have to really push yourself. This is what's going to make or break you. And this year, running my PBs, when I have, she's always been there. She's been there to say, okay, I need you to get out hard, but be smart. I need you to trust your ability and finish strong. And then she's been there. Like she drove down to LA with me several times and she drove. So I wouldn't have to drive. So my legs were a little more fresh than they would be if I drove the five six hours or she flew to arizona with me so i would have someone there at my because we don't know anyone in arizona and she wants to make sure that i have that support wherever i'm running and like she even flew down to the olympic trials just to make sure that i would have that support at the biggest stage where i haven't been and this is my first time ever being there so as an athlete she understands everything but then also as my as my rock, as my support, she's always there to push me and to support me. So 
Mm. I have her, and then I have my family and my friends. A few of my friends I ran on the track team with, so they understand, so they get it. So they support me the ways they can with the little messages or the phone calls here and there. Like one of my best friends, Evan, always keeps track with me. Jim Warren, we both ran together and we're both trying to pursue this together. So when we talk to each other, we're coming from the same understanding of, okay, we've got to keep pushing. Like mm-hmm. we're getting older, so it's harder to explain to people why are we still running and not trying to get a full-time job, right? It's like we have this desire and passion to make it to the next level. And other people don't understand that, but we understand it. Yeah. So we have to still support each other in that growth. And yeah, all my other friends say, uh, T-Boy, Shaq, my friends from back home, Shola, my brother, he's now joined track and he's arguably my number one supporter. And my sisters, yeah, everyone. I have, I'm lucky to have a great support system. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. It's really fascinating. And what a wonderful fiance that you have to be able to support you in that way. And I I hate to ask this, but was she not able to go to the Tokyo Olympics with you because of the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, it was very sad finding out that they weren't allowing anyone in because so at the Olympic trials, like this year was the first year I ran for GB, both at the, the Olympics, but I went to the European team championships back in the end of May. I was lucky enough to make two GB teams this year. And that's what we've been working towards. Like she supported me. We made goals, how we're going to reach it, what time do we have to run, how consistent do we have to try and get to. And this was all for that. It was all for the Olympics. We did everything to get there. She came to the Olympic trials. She was working. She had worked, but she still made it possible for her to come and support me with my family. Mm -hmm. And to now achieve that goal, it was a little daunting and a little not satisfying. It was a little sad to know that we could continue that journey. But at the same time, like, though she wasn't physically there, my family wasn't physically there, she was still there with me because I always have that race plan of where she is on the track to know in my, I can hear her voice in my head when I'm running, this is what mm-hmm. you need to do now. So, yeah, it was very sad to know that they couldn't be there, she couldn't be there, but I know they were still there with me and, now the goal is to make it to Paris and hopefully family, friends, my fiance, can all be there. So tell me about what that future journey looks like for you. How are you visualizing that journey? Just one year at a time, really, because it's interesting because I've never been the person to set a goal and say, this has to happen because I feel like if I don't attain it, what do I do then? Or if I even do attain it, what do I do then? I've always believed in terms of just running, my goal is just to be the best I can be. And so in doing that, if I PR, I'm being better and better. And that's the goal, just to continue being the best I can be. With my fiance, she actually says, okay, I know this is what you can do. This is where you can go. So it's helpful to have that support. So now like we're looking towards next year. Mm -hmm. Next year is the World Championships. I have the Commonwealth Games and European Championships. So the goal is again, just to be better than I was this past season. And if I can be better, there's no reason why I wouldn't make a team because I feel like I'm still a student to the sport and I feel like there's so much more for me to learn about myself. Like I've gone from, I remember in undergrad, my fastest time in the open four was my junior year, 47, 67. Mm-hmm. And I was running 21 flat. But to anyone that's running, they would be like, you can go and run 21 flat and run 47, you run 46. But it's because there was such a a learning curve for me. I'm still trying to understand how to distribute my energy to 
really utilize my speed. Even going into my senior year, I went 47.2, but I was splitting 46.6. Mm -hmm. Now I've gone into this year, I've run 46.3, and I'm, I've split 45.3 and 45.7. In relay, you're always supposed to run faster. You get that rolling leg, you have the adrenaline. Mm -hmm. But for me, every time I run a split, I end up going and opening up and running that split in the open the next year. So it's like, okay, I know there's more I can give. In the relay, I tend to execute my race a little more because it's a little more team setting base where mm -hmm. essentially what all about me was what can I do to support everyone? So that's why I'm still working out to how to get that relay time and relay execution into my open races. So I'm just taking it from now to Paris and taking it one year at a time, just focusing on being better every year, being faster every year. And if I can continue doing that, I know I'll keep raising the bar of what I can do. Uh, my potential hasn't been capped yet. So That's really great. And it seems to me that, as you say, being a sprinter to begin with, the 100 and the 200 being your events for a long time, then transitioning to this 4x400 relay was difficult for you to maintain that speed over that second 200 meter length. And there seems to be some kind of mental moment that you have at about the 250 mark. And that's when you think of your fiance and you kick it into the next gear. Yeah, I think most people go through this when you go up to running the 400. I wasn't spectacular on 100 or too much. I think the 200 I was always better at the 100. But I think for most people, when it comes to running 400, it's understanding how to make that distribution around the track. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's very... It's almost terrifying because of that fear of like being caught at the last hundred or mm -hmm. just dying out horribly and not being able to make it across. That's initially where it came from hmm. because as a sprinter, you sprint all out and then you're done. But now with 400, you can't go and sprint the whole lap because you won't physically make it. That's right. And so that kind of adjusted how I was running the 400. There'll be times where I'll just like get out nice and very easy, relaxed. And you'll see everybody, if you've watched any races of mine, you see everyone run away from me and I'm just there in the back, casually enjoying myself. And then suddenly you see just me bursting out of nowhere. Yes. So that's what I always fell back into because I trusted my speed. But at this level, you can't because everyone is going to have that speed. So it's now adjusting myself to, okay, because I have that speed, why don't I use that at the beginning and trust my training that I will still finish at the end. And I then see. obviously having my girlfriend still support me, it helps me keep that mental push to say, okay, I don't have to just wait for the reserves. I can keep it going. So I'm still working on it. There's a lot, mm -hmm. that's where I believe I'm still a student of the game. There's so much for me to learn about myself. Like my 200 times still. So then if my 200 times dropping, why can't I take that into the 400 and utilize that? But yeah, that's why I believe that I still have so much more room to grow. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more I can be better because I'm still learning about yes. myself physically. Like I haven't always been the strongest athlete. That's what I'm working on in the gym now, because mm -hmm. I think that would help me carry on to be faster and stronger. So it's all these elements that I'm still learning six years later about myself and how I could be better that I carry myself into. And I've always had that mental challenge, which is why I always think of my fiance because if I think of her, I always get that second wind or that next mm. belief in myself that, okay, you can do it. And that's why I'm just lucky because she was there from the beginning. We yes. started this journey together. So it's, it makes it a lot easier for me to switch on. That's really fascinating. And I think 
I'm not sure if I can speak for any of the listeners out there, but I'll just say for myself, I've always loved watching track and field on television and especially the Olympics, but I've never quite understood how much of a mental game it is until just now hearing you talk about your, your own experiences. I think everybody understands that track and field is a sport where people are pushing themselves to the physical limits, but it sounds like you're also doing that mentally. 100%. Just to add, as in like, Please. for me going to the Olympics, some people, so everyone on TV will see, okay, there's just a group of guys that are really fast running against each other. But there is a lot more mental towards it because some guys will run certain times and some guys haven't. How do you match yourself up? For me, that's how it was going into it. So I'm now at the level where I've been watching these guys on TV and I'm lining up next to them. Some of them may have run three seconds faster than me. Hmm. Some may have run two seconds faster than me. What do I do in that environment to make sure that I'm next to them and competing next to them? And some people may not react well to that. Some people may. And I think that's what makes the Olympics so special because at your Olympic trials, you have to be the best in order to continue. So I know personally that a few guys in the UK have run, several guys have run faster than me over the open 400 times, like their PBs are better than mine. But what I always end up coming back to is that on the day I had to do what I had to do, which finished. I was third overall. I ran my hardest, I ran my fastest, and I finished where I was. Can my time be a lot faster? Yes. But in a race setting, it doesn't matter to me what time you've ran. It's me and you on the line right now, and it's the first person to the finish line. And I think a lot of people can also vouch for that, that every race you're going to come against people that either run faster or slower than you. How are you mentally going to react to that? Are you going to allow them to run away from you and that's the end of your race? Or are you going to react and say, okay, they may have run faster than me, but I'm going to run faster this time. I'm going to beat them whether they run faster or not. And that's what my mentality was going into it. It was that I'm ready to be here. I'm supposed to be here. I believe I belong here. Whether my time says it or not, I do belong up with these athletes. Mentally, I want to run against these athletes because whether they look down on me or not, or whether they think they're faster than me or not, when it comes down to them, I'm competitive down to my soul, to my core. And in a race, I'm going to run until my body says no. And my goal is to beat you. Wow, that's fascinating, Michael. Thank you for sharing that. So let's talk about one of those races, that, that those big time races where the pressure is on and the competitive juices start flowing. And what was it like in Tokyo? Tokyo in the summertime, I know I lived there a long time. It's not exactly a, an easy place to, to even just walk outside, let alone run 400 meters in the Olympics. So how, how, did, you, how did you find the experience? Oh, I honestly loved it. I think the holding camp definitely helped me personally significantly being part of the GB team where I've seen guys compete at Olympics before where watch people win medals all on TV like I'm surrounded by amazing athletes world caliber athletes and because I'm now there with them and we're in a training camp together I need to bring myself up to that level so doing training camp I'm pushing myself to get to that level not physically but also mentally and that really helped me going into the, the village and actually training at the warm-up track and being able to run because I physically was at, and mentally was at a level I hadn't been at before. I felt that I belong here. I'm supposed to be here. So when I got to warm-up track and I was doing my warm-ups and training drills, I really felt like I was electrifying. Like I was a, one of my, Nicholas Baker, my, that I roomed with, he was like, he had that same energy. I'm a bullet ready to 
be fired out. Hmm. And I had that same kind of energy just being there. Like I loved the moment and I wanted to be in the moment and I was ready. I was ready. I know the time that we ran as a group didn't reflect that or even my own split time didn't reflect that. But I know mentally where I was in another level I'd never reached before. Hmm. And I'm taking that into this new season that I belong at this highest level. So I need to be back at this higher level. So I need to continue training at this higher level. Yeah, Tokyo was just amazing. I loved the weather. I've always been living in California, used to the warm weather. So it was nice after going home to some rainy, cloudy days to be back in the sunny days. And yeah, it was just honestly... But what about the humidity? That um, didn't, didn't seem to affect you. You had this electric feeling. You can let certain things around you affect you. But as long as you're doing what's necessary, so drinking the amount of water you need to drink, make you stay hydrated, eating, not staying out in the sun all day. So those are the things you have to be mindful of. And I think at that level, everybody's mindful of it. Everyone's understanding that you can enjoy this moment, but you're still here to do a certain job. And you just have to find that balance. And I think that holding camp helped me find that balance. But going into the village, it was, I know I'm going to run. I'm not going to go out all day and just be walking around, get my legs tired when I have training. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm going to do. But at the same time, you just, as an athlete in general, you've already found that balance, whether you're working and training or you train full time. You have to understand the balance to make sure you're physically okay to perform. So going into it with the humidity and the heat, it wasn't something I was going to be like, oh, this is daunting. This is going right. to hold me back. It was something that I used essentially to my benefit. Or a lot of days I was working out around early in the morning because I didn't want to practice in the evening and I was always up and once I get up I'm very active I'm ready to go I'm, mm-hmm. I can consider myself a morning person so even during the home camp when it's almost 28 degrees at 10 a.m that's significantly hot but I have to get the job done which is to work out and be ready to go and I personally want to acclimatize so I chose to work out in the mornings where it was warmer that way I was ready accustomed to what the weather would bring and I could race in the warmer weathers. And you, you talk about this holding camp. Can you tell my listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, different countries have different holding camps when prior to going into the Olympic Village to run. So we left, I want to say we got to Yokohama was where we our GB's holding camp was. And we mm-hmm. got there on the 16th of July. So we were there for about 10 days. So mm-hmm. right as the Olympic Games started, we would then go to the village. So from my understanding, those 10 days were set up to help us acclimatize, get used to the weather, get some training in that environment. So then when we move to the village, we're ready to go because it could be very daunting just to go from training at home, could be rainy, to then going straight to the oh, village. Sure, sure. So I, I believe that's what it was set up for. It was to help us adjust and get ready for it. And that's why it was 10 days. We were in a hotel in Yokohama. We had our own training stadium to train at. And yeah. And do all countries have these holding camps? or is- I think most countries did, but it was spread out all over Japan. Mm-hmm. From my understanding, certain countries started later. Some chose to only come two days prior, maybe the day of. So every country had, it was up to their discretion, I believe. Sure. sure. Have it, yeah. And then what was the village like, the Olympic village? You said you went there later after the holding camp. Yeah, it was surreal because you're walking around in a, essentially a little village, which is big enough for you to bike around and still take 
five minutes to get from one end to the other. If you're walking, it could take you anywhere up to 15 minutes. But it was surreal because you're in this little town, essentially, with the top athletes from every country. So you could be walking around, and Fred Curley walking on your left, or Wade Van Niekerk on your right, and it's just... But for me, because it was new, it was my first time, mm-hmm. it's, I'm starstruck. I'm seeing all these big names, and it's like, that isn't how... They're right there. But obviously <laughs> to them, this is normal. So it was incredible. I, lo- I loved the experience of being able to walk around and see all these big names, and it was just nothing. It was normal to them. So I, that's what also helped me adjust to being there. So everyone here belongs here. We're all supposed to be here. We're all equals. Whether you've won a gold medal or not, we're all here to do the same job, so we are equals. And that's how you have to view it, so you don't get the pressure of, I can't compete with these people. So it was amazing. And in at the Olympics, they have this whole thing of every country has a certain amount of pins that says their country on it. So I had 10 GB pins. Okay. And what you're supposed to do is trade them with other countries. Oh, cool. So it was a kind of a cool way to introduce yourself and talk to some other people and like create new relationships and eases off that pressure of this is someone huge I can't talk to them but these are people just like you are so get to know each other if you want that's so cool was there a particular person that you got to meet and trade pens with that you are really you know happy you were able no not one person I think every I just enjoyed the whole experience of trading pins and some people like hey you're from GB can I get you a pin it's like Mm -hmm. hey this is who I am and you just get to know people but my friend Nick he actually got a baseball and got everyone to sign it which was a really cool experience so like we'd be walking around that's Delilah Muhammad he was like oh let me go sign it and he'd run over and take it and it's like that was such a cool thing to see how everyone's so friendly but everyone is as much as what all Everyone there are superstars, world-class, but also regular people that enjoy having the conversation. So it was just a great experience. Very cool. And I'm sure that the Olympics were very controversial for a number of reasons, coronavirus pandemic and all of that. But I wonder, as an athlete, somebody who was actually there, because of course, so few people were actually able to be there. Mostly it was the athletes and, and other people involved in putting on the event, as there were no fans for this Olympics. But what do you think the legacy of these Olympics should be? That's a very good question. I think a lot of people will say how it shows resilience and to be able to overcome the situations we were all in and still be able to make it to such, to the biggest stage in the track field, that is the biggest stage you could compete on. Like you get, you get to call yourself an Olympian, which is not what you can go your whole career you can win world championships, European championships, but to the lit, to the everyday person, they're going to ask you, "Are you? have you been to the Olympics? Are you an Olympian? And that's, that holds so much weight because it's the biggest stage. So I know to be able to be that resilient, to be able to adjust your training, adjust what you're going through, adjust what's going on in the world and still get yourself to that level to make it, I think you could argue that's what this Olympics shows. It shows that even through dark times, we can still rise above. We can still rise to the best and be the best. And I think it definitely brought people together. It's something to unite us all in after such dark times. I think that's what this Olympics kind of, the legacy is. It's like unity in such a resilient way, essentially. Is how I would essentially picture it because I remember how I felt in 
2020. I had opened up in February running a PB and I was like, this is, that was just mid practice, the mid off season practice. I have so much more. I know I'm going to do well. I know I can hit heights. And then now to have to be like, okay, the Olympics isn't happening. There aren't going to be many competitions. What do I do? Do I just stop training? Mm-hmm. But then that means I won't train from March all the way up until September when we start again. What do you do in that time? Do you continue training? But why do you, you train to compete? So if I'm training to not compete, what's the point? Those are the mental challenges that a lot of athletes would have to go through, especially if you weren't able to compete. You had to, if you weren't able to get to the track, what do you do? And it's that resilience to find a way to make it happen, find a way to still be the best you can be. And I think that's what this Olympics, the legacy really is that we can all come together again, but we were all resilient in being able to get here. And what a party it will be in Paris, where there will hopefully be fans to cheer all of you on. Oh, fingers crossed. I think it will be, Paris will be beautiful in the sense that if fans can be there, it will be more meaningful than I want to say previous has been because of it's been such a change. It's been a transition of we've had to do it without them. We welcome them back and we're going to put something on that hasn't been performed Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Michael. I, I want to just finish with the, the question I ask all my guests about the power of sports. And I think you've already summed up so much of that already, but what an amazing journey that you've been on to make it to the Olympics in a sport that you really didn't even pick up until I think you're about 20 years old, but yeah. um, at least in, in earnest, I know you had been a runner your whole life, but what is the power of sports to you, Michael? It's everything. It's the love and passion. I think something that for me personally, sports has been my life. It's been everything about me. It's shaped who I am. It's helped me find my identity. It's helped me grow to the person I want to be. I've learned how to deal with situations because of sports. I've learned mm-hmm. how to create relationships, how to deal with relationships. Because as much as it is something people do because they love to do it, it's something that people hold as their identity. It, it helps people show who they are. I think when we watch athletes be this charismatic person or be this humble, shy person, it's because this is who they are, but it gives the world access to who they are. That's what the power of it. That's such a, that's a loaded question on this. I mean, <laughs> because it really makes you think. But for me, it's everything we want the world to be because you can watch sports and you can see the love, the passion, the compassion. You see the loyalty, but you can see the heartbreak. Like, it's a beautiful story is what it is. So I think I, I answered that very chaotic. Not at yeah. all. I think you answered it very beautifully, and, and I appreciate you sharing it. And Michael, it's been a pleasure to get to talk to you today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. No, thank you for allowing me to share my story and give me this opportunity to talk to others about it. Absolutely. And, and I wish you all the best of luck with your training this year and next year and the year beyond. And, and hopefully we'll see you in Paris doing it again definitely thank you so much okay thank you michael you have a great rest of your day you too okay bye-bye well that will wrap things up for the day i hope you enjoyed the show and enjoyed learning from michael about what it takes to be a great athlete i know i did and i really appreciate how he showed his gratitude to all those who helped him achieve his goals i want to thank all of you as well for listening and making the show worthwhile If you have not already, please take a minute to rate the show on Apple Podcasts 
and leave a review if you can. I try to live by the motto, there's always room for improvement, and your feedback goes a long way to making that motto a reality. I hope you all have a great rest of your day.